sky All the birds are leaving But how can they know Time for them to go
You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Nate Powell. Uh, Nate's been on the show uh, probably at least a couple of times yeah. over the past. Um, we were setting up today, and I realized I still have your Skype stuff in my contacts from the last time we probably talked, so that's just how it works. Um, Nate's latest book, uh, Come Again, which is actually out in stores today as, uh, as we're recording this. It's uh, falling into comic shops, being pulled out of diamond boxes all around North America. Um, and then I think it's out in bookstores in the beginning of August. Yes. Um, and, well, Nate is probably most known for the March trilogy with uh, Congressman John Lewis and Andrew Aiden. Um which has gotten a lot of acclaim and a lot of love from a lot of folks, being an extremely timely book, uh, which gets more relevant with with each passing year. Um, it's interesting the way that's worked. Um, yes, in the worst possible ways. It gets yeah. More yeah, there's like, I got kind of choked up in parts because there's like this optimism in there. Um, and just like, how hard that is like looking at where we're at today and i feel bad just like jumping right into that but i'm just like <laughs> i'm with you man <laughs> um now come again uh you were working on this um before you started on the march trilogy is that right like it's yeah, something you I, had in your mind I actually yes i started uh the earliest seeds of what became Come Again, I started even before Swallow Me Whole was published. Okay. So there, there was a super early uh, kind of sci-fi fantasy story that involved some of the uh, some of the details and characters, but it was a very different book. And I was doing that as a collaboration with two of my friends, who were the two people who originally got me started drawing comics. And, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things where 10 years ago, we're like, let's make a comic again. So we had kind of a summit, drank a bunch of caffeine, and uh, we started working out this story. And then one by one, those two friends of mine uh, dropped off a little bit. And while that was happening, some of my, you know, new thematic interests, uh, I realized, had these components that I had brought into our story that I could then extract and make a new story out of it. Uh, so yeah, I, I pitched it around a couple of times unsuccessfully and then started drawing it around 2011, uh, right before, uh, I signed up to do March and then I just kind of changed gears. And, uh, during doing the March trilogy, uh, I started penciling come again probably three times and I shelved it each time just realizing I wasn't ready or I didn't have the headspace to really focus on it. I'm interested stylistically, um, kind of, it's very different, um, just like the whole movement of the figures uh, from from the March work and maybe some of your earlier work, like I feel like the figures kind of getting rounder. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, and I'm wondering if that's one of the things, like, kind of like how you oh, want to... Sorry, wait, hold on. There's, <laughs> there's like a cat-dog fight that just happened, but it appears... That they've moved on to a new locale. Um, I think it's going to be okay. All right. How many what animals do you have in your house? 
well, I have two cats, but as of 20 minutes ago, there's this tiny little like troll dog who I'm dog sitting for the next two days. <laughs> and he's like old and laid back. And I was like, oh yeah, you'll be cool, man. And then right when we started the, the interview, he was like, hey, what's up? I'm going to eat all this cat food. <laughs> so anyway, it appears to be fine. They took their little WWE match to some other part of the house. So yes, the stylistic changes in Come Again, uh, I think uh, I think a lot of it had to do with over the over the course, particularly of March books two and three, developing a shorthand for my own uh, visual style, uh, especially in terms of like my touch with a brush and a pen, and a lot of that was like by necessity. Uh, as the time constraints uh, got tighter and tighter on March and the responsibilities uh, got broader and deeper, um, I had to double my page rate every single day to, to make the deadlines for those books. But when I came out of it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, like I can, my, my work looks pretty much the same, yet I can tell things are happening more swiftly with more, I guess, love for uh bridging those gaps between uh cartoony uh stylized figures and representational art uh and i think a lot of it was you know uh having the constraints in march of doing fairly accurate representations of a whole bunch of historical figures it was it's nice to just break you know to to break as far as i can out of that whenever possible and uh there weren't a whole lot of smaller kids depicted in March. There, there are definitely some, but since two of the six main characters are like these six-year-old kids, it was really nice to lean into that and lean into their their gestures and their expressions in a much more cartoony way. Um, now, the story takes place in 1979 in the Ozarks in Arkansas. Um, yourself, you, you grew up in Arkansas, right? Yeah, I sure did. You still live there again? No, remember. I. Oh, would I? I would. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've, you... I've lived. I've lived in Indiana for fourteen years now. Okay. Um, and uh, like, I don't know. This isn't my. This isn't my quote. This is another, another Arkansan quote. But basically, like, where people spend the first twenty years of their lives trying to leave Arkansas or leave their southern hometown, and they spend the next twenty years of their lives trying to move back. Uh, if I, if I were to move somewhere else, I feel like I would definitely move back to Arkansas or at least move to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, but you know, I've got a, a Hoosier family and two native Hoosier kids and I don't have a concrete reason to move to a new location. So, uh, and besides, you know, the world's burning. So if I'm going to move anywhere, I have a feeling that I'm going to be getting in a minivan and heading for the border. So <laughs> I have room for people to camp in my backyard uh, <laughs> okay can you explain hoosier sorry i'm oh, yeah. so canadian i hear oh. i hear the reference and of i course. have no idea what this means of course okay so hoosier is the term for a person who lives in or is from indiana now the reason why they're called hoosier is it's from french hoosier i think i think uh, is a variation of mountaineer, but it has to do with before 
the United States acquired what is now the upper Midwest from French Canada uh, had to do with French explorers from French Canada who were mostly trappers, et cetera, down the Ohio river Valley. Um, and like in Indiana, I live in a beautiful, like rolling hill area of it, but, uh, there's, there are giant, uh, you know, like a giant glacier flattened most of the state tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, and then these beautiful rolling hills just emerge out of nowhere in the southern part of the state. And I, I think that's where Hoosier comes from. Uh, it's like, it would be sad to call yourself a mountaineer when you're talking about these little hills. But I guess they just did what they did what they could. Well, I mean, it, in Quebec, they don't really like they talk about their mountains and becoming from, you know, the land of mountains and vancouver where we're like actually surrounded by mountains i go to quebec and like here are our, our mountains and our ski hills and like that's that's not a mountain <laughs> so i think maybe um the the quebec uh, fur trappers um maybe didn't have a good idea of what real mountains were yeah at that point, it almost yes. seems as if I, I guess putting these two anecdotes together it's almost like they're they're tossing out nicknames like just tossing them on a wall seeing what'll stick <laughs> Like, oh, that's fine. It, it's nouns and adjectives. It's cool. <laughs> now, um, with this book really taking place in a particular spot, um, is there kind of a nostalgia for you to kind of revisit this? Uh, was it a part you'd all ever spent time around the Ozarks? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, as, as a kid, I've gone fishing there. And, you know, throughout most of my life, my band has played a lot of shows. And I've spent a good amount of time in towns in the Ozarks, but, uh, all of my solo graphic novels, I think have developed as a means by which I can continue to have a, an active relationship to my home state, um, geographically, topographically, culturally. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, like growing up in central Arkansas in a metropolitan area, um, you know, any empire and swallow me whole pursue, you know, certain fictional and, and nonfiction components of, of growing up in the suburban South. Uh, but really, yeah, as far as come again is concerned, a lot of it had to do with reverse engineering the story components necessary to manifest what I wanted to happen in the story or something I wanted to see in the story. Uh, so going from like when, when the proto come again with some sci-fi fantasy story, once I decided to ground it in the real world, um, and I realized it was going to be woven into the, the other books that I had done in a fictional Arkansas, it just made sense that I would place it in this remote community in the Ozark mountains. Um, Northwestern Arkansas is a really weird place in that, well, Arkansas in general is really weird because it's like, it doesn't neatly fit in anywhere. It's not, it's not the deep South and it's not the Midwest and it's not Texas. And a lot of stuff, like a lot of influence and frames of reference just skip over the state completely. So whenever something cool or original happens in Arkansas, it, a lot of it is because like, you know, like folks don't quite get it right, but often something really original and distinct comes out of it. So Northwest Arkansas within a very small uh, plot of space has like a, you know, super progressive college towns and uh, 
absolutely atrocious white supremacist haven towns. And, you know, a few miles from that will be like, you know, a hippy dippy crystal tourist town. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating mishmash of people and livelihoods, uh, except for those shitty Nazis. So hopefully their town will burn down, but you know, the rest, the rest of the towns are fine. Well, let's talk about the hippy dippy, um, crystal selling thing, towns experience, um, which is, which is a part of this book. Um, but interesting to me, it's, it seems like it's kind of, there's a passage of time in there where it's kind of catching a latter day of that and kind of competing with like how things are changing and different things are coming through town. Uh, yeah. Okay. So since it takes place in 1979, um, Generally speaking, and granted, this is, you know, my perspective on this is is biased because I was born in 78. So this is my understanding of the world that I grew up in and through. Mm-hmm. In the same way that people might generally acknowledge that, quote, the future, which is our present, started around 95 in terms of like the presence of the Internet uh, and other technologies, geopolitical alliances, etc. 1979, to me, culturally, creatively, politically, seems to be the start of, uh, you know, the first post World War II uh, alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and whether it's like musically, you know, obviously like following things that might happen in in punk or in hip hop. Uh, these things are are relevant, but you know, like the Southern Baptist Convention being taken over by, you know, neoconservative fundamentalism in 1979 is hugely significant. The Iranian Revolution is hugely significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always seen 79 as like the gateway to the to what we would recognize as our modern world, um, but also like in that the existence of this hippie village itself within come again, it's a town called Haven station. Um, when, when I, if the setup to the story has to do with, you know, this is a story about the families who have chosen to remain in kind of this dried up hippie village that was founded a a decade prior. And by bookending, um, the chronology of the story between 71 and 79, um, I think it serves very well, you know, as a, as a larger tale of reckoning with like, you know, where you enter onto a life's path and where, what ideals you bring with you and then how far you move along in life before you realize that some of those ideals have changed in relation to where you are now. Mm-hmm. So, um, to me, it just fits very well and bookending, you know, like ha- having the story itself be bookended by the seventies, I think has some significance. I don't know how much, like, did you grow up around many of these kind of hippie communities? We're the same age. I was born in 78 oh, as well. Sweet. Uh, no, I didn't grow up near them. I, as I grew older, some of my, you know, like punk hippie crossover friends started spending more time in, in some of these places. Um, though, you know, I've read enough, articles even local articles growing up about off-the-grid communities that have survived in arkansas or in tennessee uh and uh especially it was like 15 or 16 years ago but reading a comet bus issue um it was the back to the land issue i think it's number 50 
that's interviews with folks from precisely the same cross section. And the older I got, then I started kind of going backwards from there and getting interested in, well, in reading the history of like the punk band Crass from Britain, um, recognizing them as hippies and artists and freaks in the early and mid seventies pre-punk and uh, sort of back to the land ideals mixing with performance art and music collectivization uh, yes yes uh th- there was a really strong precedent that wasn't limited not just to the south but to the united states period um and so uh i don't know it felt right to tap into that and uh you know i i i also recognized that i was using it enough as a setup for my story that i you know like I would choose the nuts and bolts and the fine details of that kind of social organization. I would leave that to someone else. So I guess, I don't know. I feel like I've leaned a little harder into genre, into embracing genre for this book too. So that's not something that, that bothers me, but it's like plainly, I'm just, I'm not that interested in getting into exactly how, you know, the water purification system might work and whose job it is to change the filter or whatever. <laughs> oh, they probably did not have filters. Oh yeah. You're right. It's <laughs> like uh, I, uh, a, a pile of charcoal. Um, that like that kind of world is not far from where I grew up. Um, like my sister was actually born on a beach in wow. 71. Um, so like, I know a lot like, yeah growing up in Vancouver Island for like the first eight years of my life. Um, you know, my family, like my dad lived in that kind of situation for many years. Um, and it's one of the interesting things about it, and especially now being older and, um, seeing kind of the decisions that my parents had made in the, and their friends and seeing like these people that continued this lifestyle for like 20 plus years. Um, and it wasn't a great decision. And you see the effects on these kids like multi-generationally and they're not ready for the real world. Like sure, sure. a lot of them wash out with like alcoholism, addictions, um, not prepared for life outside of like this, you know, optimum idea that it's just not sustainable. At some point, the government's going to kick you off the beach um, and send you packing somewhere else. And then you're going from living this optimum lifestyle to being in like forced into an apartment and it just, yeah, man, it's, uh, I don't know if I went too heavy there. Um, yeah, I'm with you, (laughs) but I think it's, it's for me, like it's striking because as you said, like 79 is a turning point, um, where you see, uh, these characters like kind of having this optimism, this idealism, and just how it kind of confronted with what is happening in the city that not, you don't get into too much of that, but it is still like an underlying current there of like, is this the real world in a way? Oh, certainly. And, and but there's also kind of like a cabinet of Dr. Caligari epilogue style current underneath the surface level in come again. When, when you really, when you really look at the goings on, the daily goings on of the village, uh, and you realize that, yes, in fact, and it's not just me being a little too lazy to 
get into the, the nuts and bolts of what makes the town tick. But when you look around and you realize that things are just a little bit too easy to, to be an off-the-grid community that was sustaining itself, and you pry a little bit more, and you get the strong, the strong feeling that the, the town is able to thrive or the people within it are able to thrive. Yeah, because they're a couple miles from a town that has whatever they need. And then, you know, like, it's not necessarily they're living a fantasy. Things don't have to be that binary, but they, they have found their own way. They're making their own way. But yeah, you're right. They're kind of like, they're, they're kind of like on existential vacation. Like a lot of it is, I guess the bigger question for this community would be like, what do you, what do they, and what do tons of other people do after the fallout, like the implosion of the peace movement? And so seeing where people find these utopian or dystopian uh, resolutions for it. Um, and I think they leaned really hard into the utopianism, but they found a convenient middle ground. Yeah. Uh, they were able to like get in right when the first commercial grade solar panels became available. But at the same time, you know, anytime they need any kind of food or resources, it's just a half day's walk away. Um, so in that way, yeah, like there is, there's an inevitable reckoning at some point that they're they're more or less opting out of society, which is fine. But it's, uh, I don't know, the question then is how much are they deceiving themselves that they're actually living up to an ideal? So for the, for the two main uh, characters, who I, I feel to be our protagonist, Luska, and her best friend, uh, Whitney, um, I feel like they and their their other two friends who then who were their partners as well you know they all arrived at this town as 20 year old freaks and uh were brought by their ideals but they were also you know they're on a life journey together and so so much of about it is their love and their dedication to each other but at a certain point you know like for haluska our protagonist she really believes in the mission of this community and what she wants to do with her life here. And she believes in raising her kid here, even though it doesn't seem to be working out that well for her. Mm-hmm. Her best friend, Whitney, on the other hand, seems to actually be doing really well up there, but clearly her heart has never been in it in the same way. She's much more guided by devotion to this closely knit friend family group by, by, this overarching sense of love. Uh, and, and to me, a lot of this comes from being in a band for 16 years with my best friends and traveling and, you know, organizing every part of our lives together for, for over a decade. Um, and we stopped being a band cause it was just, it was simply too hard all living in different cities to rearrange everything just for the sake of being together and being a family together. Um, and at a certain point, yeah, like we just had to stop, you know, reconvening the council. Uh, but it's in recognizing it in hindsight where those fissures began to occur and the dedication by which people, because of their love and their commitment to each other, would, would you know, put in the effort, even though it wasn't creatively or personally or financially satisfying uh, person to person. What's so I feel like, yeah. It's like, what's the balance of the sacrifice versus like a quid quo pro? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Like, are we 
really open about how things are affecting us. For real, yeah. And especially in, in kind of like a community based on ideals, it's easy for ideals to slip into a dream state, like a living, waking dream state. So yeah, then the question is how long can that dream state go on before it's forced to reckon with itself? Now, one of the things uh, you do with this book, which you don't do with a lot of books, uh, is you use color um, and the specific usage of color. And I'm wondering kind of where that factored in into putting this book together. Oh, sure. Uh, well, the, over the last few years, um, a lot of it thanks to March, you know, I'd gotten really comfortable with using gray washes. And uh, it really, quote, spoke to me uh, as, as a stylist shift. Um, so I feel like up until March, you know, I, I, I had a lot more hatching and cross hatching, a lot more textural stuff that was happening. And, and gradients that were happening with line work in my comics. And a lot of that was because I'm still primarily influenced by like Arthur Adams, Michael Golden, Barry Windsor Smith. Um, but as soon as I started with the washes, I was like, Oh, this is what I've been going for. I just haven't been confident enough to like step into a whole new pond stylistically. Uh, once I got, you know, pretty confident after doing, you know, 600 pages in that style, um, yeah, I guess in in many ways, I really needed to step into some new territory, especially since I was, you know, stepping back into my home territory just by doing weird solo books. Um, and I had been drawn to a lot of um, like duotone illustrations where you're using gray plus one other color to give the illusion of more than, you know, more than just two colors. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that was actually from Darwin Cook, um, and some of it was from mid-century, you know, fashion illustration, like di just different reference books I got for March. And I was like, oh, I really like this style on this particular illustration. And then seeing other people uh, do it, do a spectacular job with it. Um, I think Jillian Tanaki had done some great stories with it, but also watching like Becky Cloonan. Um, use one to two colors on top of black lines to a great effect. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Hart um, deal with it a bit. I just, I felt like I was ready. So uh, more or less, I just tried it out. And I was like, oh, that's all there is to it. All right. Well, now it's time to figure out how to actually, you know, I was like, okay, it's like my gray washes, but I add another layer of thinking to it. And I just really loved it. Uh, as far as using it as a color code. Um, before this book, I, I've been developing a coding system that's mostly in my margins, my gutters, my panel borders that'll help offer subtle delineations between whether it's past and present, night and day, internal and external narratives, um, dream and waking states. Uh, and those you know, I like using those and I still do. But as soon as I started using the color, uh, I guess I, it's because I realized the book would have to be printed in full color, even though I was only using one, one color on top. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I guess if it's printed in full color, I could throw in another one if I wanted. And then I realized I had the opportunity to switch colors uh, to the same effect. Uh, so yeah, jumping back and forth between 
between eras within Come Again. There's a color shift. Once you go inside this arcane secret cave that's at the center of the book, the color shifts. Moving into uh, revelatory dream states changes the color again. Um, a, uh, a an essential change in mental state of the characters changes the color again. Um, oh, and I, I guess Brett Weldley did a comic a few years ago for Image that had a nice, simple color shift to the same effect, and that really stuck with me as well. But yeah, and beyond that, it was just it was fun and it was nice, especially after having such a consistent art style for five years. It was nice to go to work every day and not know exactly what I was doing and actually feel like I was playing again. Yeah. That's in the process of March, um, because like the, each book gets progressively bigger, um, with the third book being bigger than twice the size of the first book. Um, did you have an idea that it it was going to expand to that point? Um, when you're jumping into like, Oh, this is going to be 600 pages. Uh, it's comics. That was a, that was a complex journey too. Originally, like in 20 late late 2011, early 2012, when I started doing March, uh, Andrew had worked up, uh, a rough working script for the entire story. Um, as one volume that that was the original intention was a single book called March. Uh, and I think it was around 270 pages or so, but because Andrew's script of March was consciously, you know, like inspired by this 1957 comic, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. Uh, it's awesome to read those early scripts because they're done like in very much five and six panel pages in a very silver age house style, you know, organizing concept. Yeah. Uh, and, but once I broke into it, it seemed text heavy for me. Uh, it makes sense now looking back when I realize when I view it through the lens of MLK and the Montgomery story. Um, but as I broke, as I started breaking it down, according to my own sense of pace and flow, Within two days, I had to email everybody being like, really excited to do March. By the way, I just want you to know it's going to be 600 pages, not 270. If that's cool with everybody, then sure. Uh, so we just decided, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. But by San Diego Comic Con 2012, that's when Andrew and I met in person for the first time. We were talking about stuff. And uh, that's where we decided just to break it up as it at its natural story breaks into three books. Uh, and, and at the time it was strictly to take the pressure off. We're like, yeah, so, you know, it won't be as, it won't seem as daunting and it'll just be fine. Little did we know that that decision not only changed our entire process by which we made March, but it determined, I mean, it, it determined the way in which March was embraced and spread I mean, you wouldn't have fourth graders reading March in elementary school if it was a 600-pound book yeah. full of, you know, like graphic violence and hate speech. Um, so, like, uh, it, it was really crazy. Like, at the time, like, none of us knew exactly what the possible scope or scale of March was. And we were trying not to think about that. We are trying to, obviously, just, like, make a good book. Um, but then the second that first book came out, we realized, like, oh that little decision determined, you know, like what, 
where we're going to take this in the next several years. And we're watching it happen in real time. But we also lucked out there. Like the first March book is really limited to John Lewis's first person perspective as a kid, more or less. And uh, so we were a lot less accountable in terms of, and obviously we had to do a good amount of reference and research and everything, but we could, we could lean heavily on John Lewis's memory and on his testimony. Um, but, you know, very quickly, as soon as book two started, we realized we were, we were entering narratives that were outside of his immediate first person framework of accountability. And that's the exact same moment we learned that March was being taught as history in history classes so then we had to be like, okay, stop, you know, like hold the phone. How do you keep a book in a history class? What are the parameters and guidelines? So we started like giving, having to give ourselves crash courses on what constitutes, uh, you know, backing up your sources and your reference. Yeah. Uh, and that only accelerated throughout books two and three. So Lee Walton took over as full editor with book two and by you know by book three he was in every way an equal fourth you know member of the creative team and at times like Andrew Lee and I were working around the clock 24 hours a day towards the end of book three in a you know like writing rewriting drawing cross-referencing fact-checking digging up new research it, it was all consuming and it was like nothing else I've ever worked on before so uh, we knew that the content was going to expand, but uh, we really had we had no way of anticipating how the process by which we made the books would have to change in real time as March took on a life of its own. Jesus, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, good luck to us all. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, I I really appreciate. Um, the uniqueness also of working with Lee and Top Shelf on this, where you have these different flexibilities that you wouldn't necessarily have with uh, with a big New York publisher. Oh, certainly. Um, and um, being able to be collaborative like that, and also um, be able to just get the books out. Certainly. And that's also as a testament to Lee and as a testament to anybody who had to do work on this as a testament to Chris Ross, you know, is it, like it, it is impossible to have worked on March and not be transformed by it and not to have been transformed by um, being around and working with uh, John Lewis. Uh, and so we really benefited by the fact that Lee is a, he's a really detail oriented person. He's a really deep music nerd. And so like anytime we travel and we're, you know, like comic con roomies, all we do is talk about music and like play each other snippets of songs and like go down various rabbit holes together. Um, so he has a natural curiosity, uh, that, that was a real strength, uh, while doing March, but also like, you know, as we're doing our work every day, you know, checking in with each other and like really being profoundly moved by what we were, by the story we were helping to tell and bring back to life and seeing its implications in the real world while we were doing it and then traveling around in the world. Uh, again, that's, that's something that is like nothing else I've ever, ever been a part of. 
it's like seeing the photos of the signings at San Diego and just the scope. Like wow. that's that's got to be pretty life-changing just for yourself on so many levels. It it is a weird one. Yeah. It's uh <laughs> it's funny how some of the some of those things have normalized themselves over the last 5 years. Uh like I I no longer necessarily bat an eye at at four or 500 people in a signing line or, you know, a couple thousand people at a, at a talk. Um, but, <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, it's all, it is really weird. Like, cause you have to put on these other hats. Like very early on, Andrew gave me the rundown that I would basically have to pretend like I was a bodyguard about a third of the time. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, trust me, just get big. And so, yeah, like, weird side of my life is I'm a, I'm a fake bodyguard too. my wiry weakling self. (laughs) I put on on a suit, which I have to do for, you know, when I, sometimes when I do the talks, but I also have to like pretend like I have an earpiece in my ear and like, just keep people away from Congressman Lewis. It's a weird part of the job. So some of that never gets normal. I just get better at doing it. That's uh, that's an unusual vocation to go into from cartoon. Yeah, especially for a comic book nerd. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> Something Simon Bisley would be better at. <laughs> that's a frightening sight. Um, yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> we'll get the Kickstarter going for that. We'll make it happen. Oi, get out of the way! Um. So with the using the wash instead of cross hatching, um, I mean you were already pretty quick as an artist, and I'm just feeling like that must speed you up exponentially. It um, does, yeah. Like the really, I yeah, I've discovered that it's all about the amount of black line work. Um, it appears that no matter what, yeah, like I can do gray washes on a page in fifteen or twenty minutes. And I can add the color layers in another 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, I had to go from the one page a day standard to now I can do two pages a day, 10 pages a week by the end of March. And uh, yeah, it was nice. Like while I was inking and coloring come again throughout you know, all of 2017, uh, it was nice because I was able to more or less live off of March royalties while I finished this book. And uh about every week or two, once enough pages had built up, I would just spend a whole day, you know, furiously painting uh, these pages and watching stuff happen and just working as feverishly quickly as I could. And a lot of that's also dictated by having a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So I no longer have any wiggle room in my schedule as as an artist. Uh, I have exactly five hours a day, five days a week to get things done. And, uh, so it's made me, yeah, I have to like squeeze 50 hours of work out of 25 hours every week. Um, so I don't know, there's a nice thrill to it. It's, it gives you a little bit of a high, I guess, when you're just in the zone and you're blasting records and you're painting and you're like, Oh no, it's two o'clock. And then you're trying to scan things before you go, you know, a hundred percent into dad mode. But yeah, it's a, a lot of it was a blur, but it was a very heavenly blur. Um, different music for different parts of the process. Uh, yeah, it, it depends that I have a, I definitely have strong musical attachments to part of, to parts of the book. 
some of them are anachronous and they just feel right. Um, for, for large parts of it, I was really, uh, I was really interested in like early seventies going on this utopian dystopian vibe, uh, both in folk and pop music, uh, the ways in which those utopian threads of reconciling with the end of the, of the sixties went down and even the culty vibe of that, like the peak, the peak of that utopian cult pop would be the diet Coke song, you know, like the, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yeah. Uh, but also like, uh, up and away in my beautiful balloon, like just pure fantasy escapism. I started getting really into that stuff. Uh, but even like as the seventies went on, I started listening to like more like, you know, like ride captain ride by blues image. Um, and uh, really started leaning into like that, like AM radio of oh, the seventies. Yeah. Uh, but your fairport convention and Straubs, those were, those were on heavy rotation while I was doing this. Uh, David Bowie, uh, or the, what we would call the space oddity album. Uh, but particularly, uh, like memory of a free festival, which closes the album. It's like a uh, 15 minute harmonium. Oh yes. Masterpiece. <laughs> so lovely. And, and it's like, I feel like it, it itself perfectly encapsulates this, uh, some of the questions that I was exploring in the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, like I, as with all of my books, there was a lot of music incorporated into come again, but I feel like the book industry in general has, has finally like tapped out of any legal risk involved with reproducing song lyrics. Uh, and I think Lee attributes it to basically the blurred lines lawsuit in 2012, um, that just made made most publishers very, very cautious when incorporating any lyrics. So uh, for me, this started with March book three Two of the last pages I did were this house party in 1964. And I, I worked out the timeline and I realized I could put a particular song by Martha and the Vandellas in playing at the house party. Uh, but then, yeah, like we couldn't do it. And then when I was hearing a little bit about the the cautious nature of publishers approaching song lyrics. Uh, so Marvin Gaye, his estate, you know, sued Robin Thicke or whoever about uh, blurred lines and won. But then it turns out Marvin Gaye, of all people, co-wrote the very song I was trying to put into March. I was like, no! So I entered Come Again being ready to do something. And I wound up having to rewrite uh, fictional lyrics to real songs in the spirit of the song itself, which wound up being a whole lot of fun. Uh, there's only one song that I kept in there because it wound up being my friend's band. Um, there, there's a like Arkansas's fictional first punk band called Diamond Mine is featured in Come Again. And they play a song called Black Cassette, which some friends of mine here in Indiana, it's their song from their old band called fat shadow. So it was nice to be able to, to stick up for, you know, an actual song, but it was also very interesting to have to find ways to rewrite what would have been at times very well-known songs. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the, uh, even before the blue line things is, you know, the Carter family book that David Lasky 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was delayed several years. Oh, wow. Because of um, song issues. Well, it does not surprise me, but that, um, what a bummer. Yeah. It's an amazing book and so vital and so important. Um, but even work that one think would even be covered by fair use at this point, or not sure. fair use, but, um, you know, uh, public domain uh, isn't public domain yet, even though it's like work from the 20s and 30s. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's some stuff they're able to cover because it's like, you know, an attributable local songs. Um, but yeah, it's a mess. But also, I guess th- this is really a testament to where independent, where, where indie comics have found themselves being able to stay afloat and thrive at times uh, in a world that has changed around them. So largely, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but I know that I'm not alone here. It's like I spent years and years and years putting certain references and putting music into my comics, not even having a reason to think anyone would ever read the books, much less that any of that material would make its way back to one of the musical creators. Uh, But at a certain point, you just put out enough books and you put enough work in, and then you're part of a, you know, a creative movement and an industry that is established enough. And, uh, yeah, eventually you'll you'll find yourself, you know, going through the threshold where you have to follow different sets of rules. So, you know, it's uh, it really doesn't bother me that much, but I, I enjoy it as a testament of, uh, you know, certain thresholds that our comics community has been able to pass through. Um, talking a little bit about a mythical Arkansas band, I want to talk about Arkansas Myth. And kind of if there's any of that that falls into this work. Oh, um, definitely. Like uh, Ozark lore. Yes. Okay, so without revealing too much about the book, yeah, there's there's a strong undercurrent of uh, young people being motivated to pursue, you know, area ghost legends and stories. But there being an arcane, uh, you know, more or less, what if one of these legends winds up being real and what if that what if that spirit force you know has the power to influence and control the lives around it or can actually bring people closer to it physically um so the major spirit force that's in my book uh is i call it the secret eater um but and i developed it before i i kind of found uh, other parallel mythological entities that were occupying the same space, but it's pretty much the same archetype as as Crom Dub or Crom Cruach, aka the Crooked Dark One. It's the same. It's like a. It's simultaneously an Ethiopian and like Celtic slash Irish god, and I believe it's originally Ethiopian. And then, you know, like 2,000 years ago, Ethiopian, you know, travelers made their way to the British Isles and brought this particular mythology with them. Uh, so, like, in The Wicker Man, actually, like, the, the, the whole situation that happens during The Wicker Man is another variation of Krom Dub and Krom Um 
and th- this ties into like, you know, uh, the, the pagan idea of, you know, first fruits that would happen like at the beginning of the harvest season around, you know, July 31st, which happens to be my birthday <laughs> and, Harry, and Harry Potter's birthday. Um, but, uh, yeah, more or less, like, uh, I discovered that what I was interested in doing was folded perfectly into these old legends of Cromdub. There's even an awesome statue in a town in Ireland of St. Patrick jump kicking. <laughs> so apparently like the legend of St. Patrick, even uh, it's like, we primarily think of him driving the snakes out of England. And I know it's like, it's a parable for the Christianization of, or not of England, of Ireland, the yeah. Christianization of the Isles. But uh, to look at different manifestations of that myth where he's just like doing straight up martial arts on this like this little like blob of a stone with a demon face on it. It's amazing. Um, I love in it. terms of local legends, I grew up around a lot of strange things in central Arkansas. Uh, and my best friend's house had a poltergeist in it. And uh, I've, I've experienced a good amount of weird stuff in my life. Um, I, I had a ghost in my apartment where I first dreamed up swallow me whole and that, that poltergeist actually kicked me out of the apartment. Uh, it was real messed up. Uh, but there, there are some real life legends, uh, from Arkansas, some of which I, I definitely believe in and some I'm skeptical about, but the, the most famous one is called the Woodson lateral spirit. Yeah, it's a, a town called Woodson. Uh, that's a little south of Little Rock, and there's a legendary kind of, you know, it'd be like uh, a motorcycle spirit or a will-o'-the-wisp. It's this weird light that goes up and down this long, strange, straight road in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I've had some very, I've had a very harrowing encounter with this light as a young person. Uh, and there's also an amazing story about a woman named Mama Lou in the swamps just to the east of my town. Uh, in the 1920s or 30s. Uh, and it turns out one of my classmates, actually, her great-grandparent owned you know, owned a general store and was an eyewitness to some of the events that are in the, the ghost story that has been passed along from generation to generation. So there's something to it. Uh, but yeah, they fall into you know, some of the, the archetypes of area ghost stories of like, being run off the road at a bridge and then losing your child in the, by being chased or whatever. And and your spirit is searching for a lost child forever. And then there might be a light that haunts that searches along lonely roads. Yeah. So all these things are kind of woven in more in spirit than in letter, but there are some moments which are pretty straight out of the book as well. Literally. (laughs) Nice. Um, well, reminder folks, I've been talking to Nate Powell and his new book has come again uh, from Top Shelf in comic stores now. And Nate will be uh, doing a lot of stuff over the next while. Uh, as I'm posting this, he'll be traveling to San Diego, uh, SPX and CXC in the fall, uh, Cab in New York, Miami Book Fair, Mice, St. Louis. You're going to be doing yeah, something Saint there. Louis. You and bet. A whole range of different things in the south and midwest um, you bet stores and signings and whatnot uh thank you nate so much for taking time to chat with me well, thank you out of your precious work hours before you go into full dad mode um 
Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Anytime, man. Thanks, Robin. Maybe I should announce it. Sure. Memory of a free festival. Children of the summer's end Gathered in the dampened grass We played our songs and felt the London sky Resting on our hands, it was God's land It was ragged and naive, it was heaven Touch, we touched the very soul of holding each and every life We claim the very source of joy ran through It didn't, but it seemed that way I kissed a lot of people that day Just one drop of all the ecstasy that swept that afternoon To paint that love upon a white balloon And fly it from the toppest top of all the tops That man has pushed beyond his brain Satori must be something just the same we scanned the skies with rainbow eyes and saw machines of every shape and size. We talked with tall Venusians passing through. And Peter tried to climb aboard, but the captain shook his head, and away they soared. Climbing through the ivory, vibrant clouds. Someone passed and blessed among the crowd Then we walked back to the road Unchained
the sun machine is coming.